All right, let's get into it today. Uh, I had posed the question, what if we happen to be Ephesus? Uh, There is a possibility that some elements of that we are part of, and might even be that for all I know. But it's a what if, I'm not saying we are. And I showed some of the instruction that was given to the Ephesian church. And today I want to go directly to the book of Ephesians, written directly to them, because they were one of those churches that Paul had raised up, and they were the first on that mail route of uh, Revelation 2 and 3, the first to be addressed. And certainly if the church eras progressed through the last 2,000 years, Ephesus was the first of those seven that has culminated now in the end time with the Laodicean church being the most prominent. So, I think I mentioned that the early New Testament church lasted about 70 years until it virtually disappeared, that there had been a great falling away. And I don't think that it's ironic at all Things happen in patterns. We've seen that many times. But this end-time church has existed about that long and is quickly disappearing, just as that did. In fact, Worldwide Church of God has been pretty well absent for quite some years now. Uh, Unheard of, gone, disappeared. And it has slowly just kept coming apart with less and less membership and less and less central organization until there's virtually nothing left of it today as we address the issue. And there hasn't been for some years now. <clears throat> only The only thing at all visible are the splinter groups that have broken off, and in terms of a worldwide presence or knowledge of the public, we've virtually disappeared. There was a time in the 60s and 70s when if you asked people if they'd heard of the World Tomorrow broadcast or the plain truth, the majority of people would say, yes, I've heard of that, or I've listened to that. And now you mention it, and most people say, no, never heard of it. Or if they think real hard, they think, oh, yeah, I seem to kind of remember something. But it's gone. Now, they lost something somewhere, didn't they? There was a great falling away in that day. It had started out with great promise on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, with tremendous miracles, thousands of people being converted day by day, and in incredible miracles that were being done. But somehow people lost that. And it sort of, over time, just disappeared. It was gone. Now, God gives, and John did in in, uh, Revelation 2, quite a little instruction there of good things about the Ephesian era, and he was talking to that particular congregation in Ephesus itself, but the message certainly, I think, was there for the entire church, and that's why God included it in the Bible itself. And if there is a reenactment of those seven churches in the end time, which I sincerely believe there is, then we have to consider and deal with the situation as it is. 
Now these Ephesians, as we get into this, you'll see that Paul is reminding them of a lot of things and of very important information that they have had, and yet it appears that kind of behind the scenes or reading between the lines here, that even though they had that knowledge, they had let it drift somewhat from the focus of their minds. And they were living as if they were in spiritual poverty when truly they had incredible riches in understanding. And I wonder if that might not affect us some at times. I think that right here in this congregation, we have been given a great deal of insight and understanding that some others may not have in certain areas. I'm not saying we have a corner on the truth or a market on everything. I'm not trying to say that. What I'm trying to say is I think that God has given us some insights that are important here at the end time. But it is always a danger that when we receive something, over time we get used to it and don't then react in the way that we should. So let's see what Paul has to say to the Ephesians and perhaps examine ourselves a bit and what might or might not fit and wear that which will, and we don't have to put on that which does not. But we certainly need to be open to what is written here, uh, whether we might be the Ephesian era of the end time or whether we might be something else is really neither here nor there because all Scripture is given for instruction and righteousness and for guidance and correction and so on, as we have seen. All right, Paul, an apostle of Emmanuel the Christ by the will of God. So he's stating that he did have an office given purposely by God to the saints, the called out ones, which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Emmanuel. So, I think that fits so far. We've been called here for a purpose uh, by God, by Christ Himself, to be His called out ones, to be His saints. He says, Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the eternal Emmanuel of Christ. Well, He knew the Father and the Son well enough to know that he could address them and say, you are God's people, and I can bring you the grace of God. After all, God has called us, has he not? We're here because God brought us here. And I don't necessarily mean right here, but I mean in the church of God, whatever part we might be in. God caused it to happen. And when it's split up, then we kind of like... Little gold flakes got scattered all over the bottom of the, the creek. So it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Emmanuel the Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. But we have had spiritual blessings and understanding that have come right down from God because our minds could not even be open to the truth of God unless the Spirit of the Father drew us, unless He opened our minds and let us understand and see what is. So God has done that for us. 
There's a lot said here already. God is not addressing those people, and Paul wasn't, as if they were nobodies and nothings. He was addressing them as if they were important to God. And I think sometimes we look at ourselves and we don't feel very important. And in one sense, we're not very important. We're just another living, breathing human being, each of us. And yet because of what God has done by letting us in on some secrets, we are, every one of us here, very important. Because we have, ahead of most people, an opportunity at some things that God is preparing. And what He is doing is important, and if we can be part of it, then that in itself makes us important, whether we are important as people or not. So it's with that mindset that he addresses these people. Were there some problems in the Ephesian congregation? I'm sure there were. But one of the probably biggest problems, as we examine this and get into it, is that they were not recognizing the importance of what they had become based on the knowledge they had. It's difficult for us, as human beings, to recognize that we're unimportant, and yet at the same time recognize that we are important. You follow me? People in this world are self-important. And we have been taught and trained not to be self-important, but to be important for God's purposes. So our importance takes on something way beyond any self-importance or importance in this world that we might have. It becomes a godly importance. And then the ditch to that is that we can become self-righteous and not attribute what we know and learned and have or have learned and have to God, but somehow puff ourselves up. So human nature is a very difficult thing to work with. It's hard for us to comprehend and grasp and continually understand what importance we have and why. But understand that we are truly important to God. And we need to act as if we are people of importance, not as if we are unimportant. That's the bottom line of the whole thing. Act important in the right way. According as He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Now, there are a few individuals that he said he chose from the, from the womb, like Jeremiah or John the Baptist. I don't think that he probably picked each of us out individually and knew who we would be before the foundation of the world. Now, some have believed that 
I, I don't necessarily know that that's the case. Now, could God have done that? Perhaps so. But he even remarks in Scripture how uh, rarely he even calls one from the womb. So how can we say just because we're in the church, he knew us individually before the world was founded? Because that would be way before the womb. And that in itself is a rarity in Scripture. Now, he knew before the foundations were laid that he would make man and man would sin and Christ would have to come and be the Lamb of God and be sacrificed. He knew that before the foundations of the world. So he knew sin would enter. But how would he know who was going to marry who all through history? And there have been a lot of illicit relationships where illegitimate children were born, where rapes occurred, and any one of us here could have any of those things in our background and maybe not even know it. Incestuous relationships where pregnancies occurred. There could have been all kinds of things involved that we don't even know about. Now, would God, if he said, well, I know that I'm going to have that person, you know, be born in 1960 or whatever, then he would have had to have made sure that all the rapes and shack-ups and everything that have occurred through history occurred in order for you to be who you are? I doubt that. But he did know the man would sin and that he would call out some people, a certain type, the weak in the base essentially, and he would use them to show his glory and his honor and if we are here to show the honor and the glory of God, does not that make us important? God is counting on a certain number of the people that he has called in this end time. Now, I've met quite a few of them here and there, different congregations around the country, at Feasts of Tabernacles, and visits to other continents. I've met a lot of people of God. He's called a bunch of us. And out of those, he's going to choose a few to represent him. Now, if somebody comes to you and say, well, I represent the county, or I represent the state, or I represent the federal government, you immediately get scared. No, I mean, you immediately think, well, that's a person of importance. Because they represent something bigger than we are. They represent government. They represent higher powers, if you will. But God has called out us to represent Him directly. You could go to somebody and say, Hi, I'm a representative of God Almighty. Who are you? The government comes to you and says, well, I represent the United States government, I would like you to what? And you could say, well, I represent God and I'd like you to what? 
Now, God is going to confer that kind of power on his people here at the end at some point. And he's called us to be a part of that. Now, the only complaint, really, in Revelation 2 of the Ephesian people was that they had lost their first love. That zeal, that energy, that desire, that strength, that power, that love of God and the things of God. And it's an important thing. Now, do you see in here already, between the lines, kind of, that Paul is discussing that with the Ephesian church. That maybe they had lost track of how important to God's plan we are if we've been called out of this world to be a part of the family of God. So he goes clear back to before the world founded and said, God said he's going to call people like you, people like us here today. I think that's the point he's making rather than that we were individually selected before Adam and Eve were ever even created. But a certain type of people. Having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. You know, if you go to an adoption agency and they show you pictures of all these kids that might be available to adopt out of what, dozens, hundreds, thousands of pictures and little biographies, you might say, well, I want that one. Or if one of our movie stars do, as some of them tend to do today, they'll go over to some foreign land to adopt a child. Well, when they get there, there's thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of kids that could be adopted. But their eye happens to fall on one and says, I like that one. Now, he's saying of us that he looked down from heaven and he said, I want that one and that one and that one and that one. No, I don't want that one. No, 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 I don't want that one. I want that one. He pointed the finger at each one of us here. To the praise of the glory of his grace wherein he has made us accepted in the Beloved. So, we have been accepted of God to be a part of his church, of his body. To the praise of the glory of his grace, oh, let's see, I read that, let's go to verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood. So, not only did he take each of us out individually, but... He was willing to come to this earth, live, and die for us so that we might be redeemed or bought back by the price of His blood. Through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. You know, most of the people that are walking the earth today bear their sins. They are living in a guilty condition. Whatever they have done contrary to the law and the way of God is held over their head. And the wages of sin is death. 
and they will die. We here are among the very, very few who walk the face of the earth. A few ten thousands at the most who have had their sins removed so that they will not have to die eternally. Now, out of around six, six and a half billion people on earth, that's pretty impressive, isn't it? You think about it? You know, you would think that if that were in the uppermost consciousness in your mind of what God has done and how He's done it, that it would motivate us to far greater than sometimes we accomplish. To be much more than what we are. You see, it's motivation that is so important. It's without vision that the people perish. So what Paul is trying to do to instill in these people at the beginning of this book is how important it is that God had called them and had chosen them to be forgiven. Verse 8, wherein he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. So he has treated us with wisdom, with prudent thinking and acting, so that whatever we individually need, he has the wisdom, the judgment, the prudence, to allow us to go through whatever it is we need to go through to cause us to live up to what He has projected us to be. That is the why of trials and tests and difficulties that we go through, is to teach us, to guide us, to lead us to be more like Him in every way. He has a very positive attitude toward us. He's called us out, and now he is using his wisdom and his own prudence and judgment to put us through what we need to go through to transform us from weak and base to mighty and strong. And in all cases, in the physical world and science, If something is to be developed, it generally goes through heat and pressure and all kinds of a process to make it what it becomes. Diamonds are often used with the heat and the pressure they go under. The refining of metals to bring out gold or silver or whatever. And God uses those analogies Himself in many different places in the Bible. That's why He says, count it all joy, the trials and the troubles and the persecutions and difficulties we go through, because they don't seem at the moment, even chastening, doesn't seem to be pleasurable or fun. And it's not. But it yields fruit. It yields change. It yields growth. Now, we don't like to be pruned. We don't like the idea of pruning. If you prune a tree, you get some shears and you go out there and you start cutting limbs off. And that's not... If you were a tree 
and somebody starts, or you know, think of yourself that way, and somebody starts pruning, it doesn't sound good. We don't even want a finger pruned, do we? Even a hangnail can be quite painful. But God said, those that bear fruit, He will prune them so that they bring forth more fruit. So pruning or cutting back actually yields good in the long run. So that's something that is simply part of the process we go through. It isn't always an easy process, is it? But aren't we glad that He has enough love and concern for us that if we're not bearing as much fruit as we could, He'll prune us, He'll trim us, He'll work us over and reshape us, and then we'll blossom and bring forth even more. So He does it in love. Now, if a tree had feelings, it might say, hey, you're, you're cutting my branches. And yet, if the tree had understanding, it would realize that the old growth has to come off in order for the new to come that will produce more blossoms and more fruit. And that actually the pruning is good for the tree. Verse 9, Having made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He has purposed in Himself, uh, the things of God are a mystery. He even speaks of marriage as a mystery in chapter 5, but how it pertains to Christ and the church. And men have sought understanding many, many years, many generations, all the way back. People are always wanting to understand the afterlife. They want to understand about some God. They want to know what comes next. And they've sought those things out, and yet it is only to a few that the mystery of God, of how he's trying to reproduce himself, is understood. Only a few tens of thousands of people out of all the billions who walk this earth today have any clue as to our purpose on earth. When we get bogged down in our own trials, troubles, and tribulations, and attitudes, and whatever we get involved in, it's easy to lose sight of how incredible the plan of God is, that He could take that which is flesh and turn it into spirit, and to rule the universe forevermore in peace and love and happiness. Is that what losing your first love and zeal means? is that we somehow begin to kind of lose sight of that and it doesn't have its daily strengthening in us as much as it should because we are bogged down in other things. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, it says, when the fullness of times comes, there is a time element involved always. And we can sometimes get our hopes up that certain things will happen in a time frame that we wish, but it may not be the fullness of times. And we might be a little disappointed now. We were hoping, that some of us at least, and I was, that maybe some of the blessings we've read about would occur in this first month. Well, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen here in the next five hours or six. 
Maybe we do have another year before that happens because he does promise certain blessings in the first month. Now, should we get discouraged because we hoped for something that was not quite time for it to happen yet? No, because that hope is still there, because we know that God has made those promises and they will happen. It's a matter of when. And we have to be what we are supposed to be and do what we're supposed to be doing. And when the fullness of times comes, those things will happen. I don't think it's wrong to get our hopes up as long as we don't get them so high and put all our eggs in that basket to the point where then emotionally dashed and become a little quivering lump of jello and not any good to anybody or to God either. So it's not wrong for us to say, hey, maybe, and a little speculation can help us and encourage us to move in the right direction. But just because I'm hoping something doesn't mean that that is entirely within God's will. I've been hoping some of these things would happen every spring for the last decade at least. Actually, more than that. But if it's not quite time... I try not to let myself get too let down, but just realize, okay, we move on. Habakkuk got frustrated, and he said, well, I guess I better sit on my watch and wait for God, because God knows what he's doing. So that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. So that the total unity of everything in heaven becomes unified with that which is on earth. After the return of Christ, we have a honeymoon with him at his father's throne for a year. And we come back, the father, the son, the new Jerusalem, all will be here in one. We'll dwell with God and be the bride of his son. What more could you ask? but it will be in the fullness of his time. There are a lot of people who've lived since the first century A.D. who have understood the mystery of God, who've understood about the resurrection. Paul, Peter, James, John, all those guys did. These people in Ephesus understood about the resurrection. And do you realize that they thought that Christ was going to return in their day. And in fact, many of the scriptures written indicated that their attitude was Christ is going to be coming back real soon, and while I'm still alive. And could you imagine how frustrating and disheartening it might have been to realize at some point that this thing is a long way away, and I'm going to die here physically on this earth, and it's not going to happen before that. Now, Paul wrote as if Christ was going to return, and Christ let him labor under the misconception. He didn't straighten them out on that. He could have very easily, couldn't he? Couldn't he have said, well, I know you guys have got your hopes up, but this is going to be about 2,000 years down the road. Oh, no. But he allowed them to think it was going to happen soon. As a hope, 
as a motivation, as a strengthening. And then at some point, each and every one of those apostles and those early New Testament people who listened to them began to realize that, no, he's not coming back as soon as we thought, and we're all going to die. And nearly all the apostles became martyrs. So they went from the hope of Christ returning soon and them just being changed in the moment to the idea that, oh, you know, Peter just got it over there and Paul just died in Rome and huh, I guess I'm next. Now there's a frustrating way to live, isn't it? wonder when they'll come for me. You know, we haven't been through much yet, have we? But it's so easy to take things for granted. And that's what God would have us not do. In fact, the problem that Ephesus had, the having lost the first love, and the problem that Laodicea had, which we've all been part of, the nonchalant, eh, okay, lackadaisical approach, are very similar. So what went around in the first era came around in the last era. So he said, in the fullness of times, it's all going to come together the way the Scriptures say. Verse 11, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance. Wow. Not only is it going to happen, but we have an inheritance there. Now, Paul realized he wasn't going to inherit in his life at some point, but he knew he would at the time of the resurrection. In fact, he even phrased that, I think, in Thessalonians, where he says, we which are alive and remain will be changed in a moment in the twinkling. Well, he thought when he wrote that, he was one of the we. Now, I think some of you will be part of that we. 2,000 years down the road, some of you are not going to physically die. Some of you are going to be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. You're not going to have to physically die. Now, there's a perk. In whom also we have an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will. He puts his bread upon the waters, casts them on the waters, and they don't come to him futilely or in a void. He accomplishes his good pleasures. He is able to do this. He's able to do it with you and me. We've got to believe that. You know, if you think something is absolutely, totally unobtainable, you don't put much effort into achieving it, do you? Because it just seems totally impossible to you. Isn't there something in your life or mine, I think probably a lot of us have, looked at things that we would like to do or what we'd like to be or where we'd like to go or whatever. And it just seemed to be an impossible thing to have happen. We might have simply not had the talent, you know, if you wanted to be 
a music star and couldn't carry a tune in a bucket, you didn't pursue the idea very much. There are those who get on American Idol who have no talent whatsoever who cannot sing, and for some reason they are deluded into thinking they can. But it's an impossible dream. It can't be done. So maybe they give it up and seek something else. Now you and I need to be convinced that God can transform us into God someday. We need to believe that so that it can be accomplished. Now if He has set His hand to transform us, and we, on the other hand, think, how could that be me, and I'm so slow to grow, I'm so slow to change, I'm so weak, I fight myself day in and day out, how could I ever, ever achieve the things God wants me to be? Well, if He's chosen to call you, He has adjudged that you are capable of it, and He will provide whatever heat and pressure and time and strength that is needed to help see that you are molded that way. And the more do we deny it, and the more stiff-necked and rebellious we are, the more He has to rub our nose in it in order for us to accept that, yeah, maybe God is working with me. Because a fatalistic, I-can't-do-it approach is very common and very human. That we should be to the praise of His glory who first trusted in Christ. Who first trusted Most people still do not trust in Christ. And even those who use His name don't even know who He is, don't know His plan, don't know His purpose, and really are not Christians because they have no idea what Christianity even is. But we do know. In whom you also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. We went through a process, didn't we? Where we learned of things that we'd never heard of before. The true Sabbath. Holy days, what are those? I'd heard of Christmas and Easter. I didn't know about these. Feast of Tabernacles? Never heard of it. What's that? We went through a process of education. We learned of God. And we said... I believe that. I'm going to do that. And we set our course. Then we were baptized and received the Holy Spirit of promise, and we were sealed. Now, he is going to seal 144,000, and he's already begun sealing them. He began that sealing process a long time ago. He's going to complete it here at the end very soon. So he has 144,000. Now, once we are a part of God's church, once we have His Holy Spirit and are sealed, we must be careful not to break the seal. When God sets you aside and seals it like you seal a letter, that letter is going to go through the mail and arrive where it belongs, unless somehow the seal is broken and the contents fall out And it doesn't make it for some reason. 
which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of His glory. He gives us His Holy Spirit. It's the earnest money, like in a real estate deal. It's just a down payment. It's just a beginning. It's not even a down payment. Earnest is not down payment. It's just a sign that you intend to go through with the process. So God gave us His Spirit as earnest money that He was planning to see us through this thing. Now, it can be as hard or as easy as we want to make it, I guess. If we're stubborn, we're stiff-necked, we're rebellious, we plant all four feet sometimes at some of God's instruction to us, then it'll be harder on us. And he says that that characterizes Ephraim, doesn't he, in Hosea? He says, stiff neck, uh, well, let's see, a backsliding heifer he calls Ephraim. And I think we're probably mostly Ephraimites here. Plants all four feet and she choked to death before she'd come forward. Which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Christ purchased us with his blood under the praise of his glory. He valued us and he purchased us. Now, he purchased in ultimately the whole world. Christ's sacrifice is there for everyone who sinned, everyone who has lived. God so loved the world, the whole world, every human being that will be born. But he chose some first for his purposes. Now, if it was just about salvation, he could have waited on you and me, couldn't he? And I think that explains what Herbert Armstrong tried to say that I think we didn't quite get. He would often say, you're not called for personal salvation. You're called to help with the work. And that was always a little confusing to me because, well, I want to be saved. But I think the point is that all human beings will have an opportunity at salvation. Maybe he should have said, you were called now to do the work instead of later when others will be. Why did God call us here now? Because he had a specific job for us to do out here in the desert. Others will come later. Some will not come at all. But he had a purpose for us. Because he had a job he wanted done. So we were not called here because we're any better than anyone else in the church. We were called here to do a certain job that he wants done. Now maybe others were called to be where they are to do whatever job God has or they perceive to be their job. I don't know whether their perceptions are always correct. And they would wonder about our perceptions being correct. But we must do what we perceive. Now, could we sit somewhere else and be a part of salvation? Perhaps so. 
But if God calls us to do a certain job and we don't do it, is our salvation then becoming vulnerable? Maybe it is. Because if you won't do what God has for you to do, then maybe he says, I don't have much use for you if you're that kind of person. So he has to try and he has to test and he has to check our reactions and whether we'll be faithful and true and strong and fulfill the purpose he gave us to do, the job he has for us, or whether for personal considerations we'll say, ah, I don't know, too much for me. But he saw fit to commission us, I think, to prepare a place for others for later. And I think we've done some of that. Maybe we have more to do. But I, think, I don't think we can afford to sit back then and say, well, we did that. I think we have to grow spiritually because we may have more work to do. If we accomplish what God first gives, does He not always give more? He does. Remember the parable of the, was it the talents or the pounds? The pounds, I guess. Where the one laid it up in a napkin. He says, now take it from him and give it to the one that I gave more. He increased it. Now give him more. So if God gives us a certain amount and we accomplish with it, then he will give us more. If we don't do anything with it, it'll be taken away. So, if God gave us a job to do, and we've accomplished at least one phase of it, and done so successfully, then he'll give us more. But we need to be sure that we're spiritually prepared to do more. That we still have the fire, the zeal, the energy, the Spirit of God to do whatever he lays upon us to do. Let's see, where was I here? Let's go down to verse 15. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the eternal Emmanuel, and love to all the saints, faith to God and love to the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. So Paul said, not only are you important to God, but you're important to me too. And I pray for you without ceasing. That the God of our Lord, Emmanuel of Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. He prayed that they be given knowledge or wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God. I think we've been given some revelation, some understanding in the words of God to understand what has to happen here at the end time that most people in the church of God today don't even understand. What a blessing that is to know ahead of time what has to be done and to get to be in on the ground floor to be a part of that. Do we realize how blessed we are to be out here in this desert 
I think we're going to learn even how much more we're blessed as time goes on. Because as things come apart in this country and around this world, day by day, week by week, and month by month, from now on, we're going to begin to be so very, very thankful to be here. Wind and sun and all. Because it's going to be a lot better here than it is a lot of places. Verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Open our eyes to see some of the things he's going to do here at the end time. People like to be in the know. You ever notice that through life? Wherever, whether it's in a business there are always those who like to know what's going on. They like to always have all the answers. They like to know ahead of anybody else what's going on, what's coming down next, what our next plan and purpose is. People like to be ahead of the curve a little bit because it makes them feel good to know ahead of time before these other people do what's about to transpire. It's just human to be that way. And there's not anything necessarily wrong with that, used properly. But we're the some of the few, brethren, who are in the know about what God is planning to do here at the end time. What an incredible thing that is. That we, of all people, would have some of that knowledge ahead of time. And the opportunity to do something with it. Of course, to whom much is given, much is required, we must always remember. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power? I've seen at least three pretty nice healings in the last few weeks. That's exciting. It feels good to know that God reaches down. I mean, people who would not get over something or on their own not get better and weren't, and you can see God's hand in it, and you know He's here. Now, He may not have showed up in the power and the glory that we would like, but He's here. There are a lot of places you could go on this earth, parachute out of a plane, and look around and say, is God here? No, no evidence of that whatsoever. But I've seen evidence that he's here. So he has great power, verse 19, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. What a miracle. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. Now, if we really grasp what he said in that verse, 
if we really grasped and believed that one verse, how different our lives would be. We would not live in fear of what man can do. We would not worry about things that will transpire here at the end. Because we believe that God has all power and is above every principality and power on earth. And He can protect and be with us and help us and strengthen us to accomplish anything we face. Israel faced a situation where they had to swim or drown, try to climb mountains they could not climb, or be killed by the Egyptians. And when Moses, who believed God had power, said, Be stand still and see the salvation of the eternal, God saved them. They didn't have to worry about the Egyptians, did they? But I'll bet they did. Don't you? If you were standing with mountains on two sides and an ocean or a sea in front of you and you had tens of thousands of chariots and thundering horses coming from behind you, would you not be scared? <coughs> oh no, we're all going to die. And Moses said, don't fear, observe God's salvation. And at the last minute, God acted. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will bring us to the precipice. He'll bring us to the edge. And if we trust, He will save us. He always has. And he's put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. Christ is the head, and we're his body. That's a pretty close association, wouldn't you think? My wife told me she had a dream last night. It was kind of a strange dream. She said she could see all these bodies and no heads. And the bodies all looked about the same. You couldn't tell one from another. Who's that? No heads. A body without a head isn't much. We'd all be freaked out if we saw a body without a head on it. Well, our head is Christ. And the only way that you can recognize the body of Christ is if the head is in place. Time is it? Okay. Chapter 2. And you has he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. We were as good as dead, brethren, because of the sins, the trespasses, the mistakes we've made in our lives. And God redeemed us from that, brought us back to life. That's why we were baptized. It symbolized death. Went down in the water, and if it held us down, the bubbles came out, that would have been the end of it. But we were brought back up to newness of life. 
Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. So we were out here in the world like everybody else, and he's saying right here that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He is the present ruler of this world. And the society we see around us, the culture that is around us, is of Satan, the devil. That's why he tells us to come out of it and not to fellowship and be friends with the world. Because they are in contact with and led by Satan, the devil. That's just the way that it is. And that's where we were. And we were called out of that. You know, some things out there seem okay, don't they? But you have to understand that the demons of Satan can appear as angels of light. And that there are things that do seem right to a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. So there are elements of the society that can be exciting to us or can be uh, seem like, hey, this, there's nothing so wrong about that. But there's always a little twist somewhere that turns it Satan's way and leads us away from the true God. I mean, isn't it obvious outside the world and some things they do are a lot worse than other things they do? Obviously. But even those things that seem to be kind of okay might not be all they appear to be. Because in some way, they lead us toward Satan. I think the biggest dispensation of that is going to be when this new world order takes over and the whole world will worship the beast because it just seems like the right thing, the way to get us out of all our problems. The hunger, the famine, the disease, all the things that are wrong, economic troubles, They'll seem to have all the answers. And it'll look good. It won't look evil. It will look good. But Satan's behind the whole thing. And he can make something that is diabolical and completely opposed to God so attractive that the whole world will go after it. Isn't that an incredible thing? So we need to be very careful when it comes to saying, well, that might be all right. Maybe we need to say, wonder what the catch is. What's the twist here? That's the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. It is not the spirit of God working in the Methodist, the Baptist, the Catholic Church, any of these do-gooder organizations that are around, it is not the Spirit of God in them. It is the Spirit of Satan. To in some way suddenly lead us away from God. And it's in every element of society. We are the only ones, the called out ones of God here at the end, the only ones who have contact with God. The rest worship they know not what. They think they worship God, but they do not. 
There are only a very few ten thousands of people on the earth who have any connection with God today. Hard to believe that all these religions with all their fine buildings and their colleges are the work of the devil. But they are. He rules the whole world. He has deceived the whole world. And we are among the very few who have any contact, any understanding of God. How privileged we are. Among whom also, the disobedient of the world, we all had our conduct in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. The normal human being, with his desires of the body and the mind, unchecked, unguided by the Spirit of God, just fulfilling what feels and seems good to us. By nature, we're the children of wrath. The wrath of God will come on human beings for just being human. Almost every desire, almost every feeling, almost every human reaction is ungodly. Because the carnal mind is enmity to God. That's why it is so hard for you and me to be like God. Because our normal, natural human mind is enmity. It's an enemy of God by nature. And when we turn and try to walk God's way... We're trying to love our enemy. God is our enemy by nature. Maybe there's some instruction there on why God says love your enemies. Because we have been enemies of God. And every reaction we normally have as a normal human being is in some way selfish or self-centered. Do you believe that? Do we grasp that? There are people out there who do a lot of good, aren't there? There are people who sacrifice their lives in caregiving for other people. They're kind, they're gentle, they're loving. I've run across them here and there when I've seen them taking care of people and doing things that I might have trouble doing. It is not the easiest thing in the world to take care of debilitated human beings that are about to die and have all kinds of evil things coming from every pore of their body. But there are some people who are capable and able to do that, and I admire that capacity in them. But in one sense, it's all for naught, because at best... They think well of themselves for what they are able to do. But it is out of a self-centeredness and a desire to be liked and loved and 
praised. Now, some have more of a natural desire to help others than others do. So I won't say that that's necessarily wrong, but just the way we operate as human beings is contrary to God's way. And we do it for our own personal desires, as a, whatever they might be, as opposed to fulfilling His purposes. But God, who is rich in mercy for His great love, wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ. So He loved us even when we were still sinners. didn't love our sins, but He loved us. Even when we were dead in sins. Now that desire for us, that embrace that He feels and emotion toward us has increased because we have turned and decided to go His way. However much we plant our feet and our nature holds us back. So He's quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved. And has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Emmanuel. We have a place reserved for us in heaven. Position in the kingdom of God as a bride of Christ. We've been sealed for that. That in ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us through Christ Emmanuel. Now, sometimes it doesn't seem too glorious, does it? It seems difficult and hard and a tough row we have to hold here in spiritual boot camp. And it is hard. He didn't say it wouldn't be. But we need to understand what's coming. And if we meet the trials, the tests, the difficulties that we have in this life, that we're going to be rewarded eternally. Ages to come. Verse 8, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. The unmerited pardon through faith and obedience. But salvation is a gift, because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. It doesn't matter how many good works we do, if we've sinned, the penalty of sin is death. So there's a lot of people who have done a lot of good works, but whatever sins they've committed are going to kill them in despite of it, unless they come under the grace and the forgiveness of God. And that's a gift He confers on those whom He will. Now, didn't He say of the Ephesian church in Revelation 2 that they had done good works? They were complimented for their good works. Good works are a good thing. But unless we have our sins forgive, forgiven, the good works mean nothing because you die for the sins. What people don't understand it is, is that is that it is both grace and works. He gives us grace because of our good works. But you can't earn salvation. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Emmanuel unto good works. We're supposed to do good works which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. There are those who say, well, it's by grace only, just God's selection, so the works don't matter. Well, we were it says right here we were created to do good works, so we're supposed to walk in them. 
but they won't by them by of and by themselves save us. We need His mercy, His compassion, and His forgiveness on top of it. Wherefore, remember that you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, and the Ephesian church was a, a, in a Gentile area, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So you're just like the rest of the world out there. You're no hope in God. But now we have hope. But now in Christ Emmanuel, you who sometimes were far off are made close by the blood of Christ. You were way far away and would never have had salvation, but the blood of Christ brought you near because it can forgive sin, and sin is what keeps you from being in the kingdom of God. For he is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. What's been between us and God? Sin. And it was his blood that washed the sin away. So that broke down the partition, the wall, that was between us and God. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of two one new man, so making peace. Because of the commandments of God which we broke, we were separated from God. So there was God on one hand and us on the other hand. So we were two. We were separate, in other words, is what he's saying. But now because of his sacrifice, we can be made one. Now ultimately, we become one in the marriage of the Lamb. We're becoming at one with him as we quit sinning and as his grace and forgiveness is extended to us. And we'll be made completely one in him at the time that the Day of Atonement pictures in the marriage of the Lamb. So he makes one. Isn't it neat to be one with God? The rest of the world is still totally separated and divided off from God. They are under the power of the prince of the power of the air. They have no contact with, they do not know God. They've heard of him, but they don't know him. They don't know who he is, what he is, what he can do. They have no relationship with God. We do. We few, but we do. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the stake, having slain the enmity thereby. So the enemy that we were to God, peace could be made through his sacrifice. So we could live together in peace with God. So if we were enemies of God by being by virtue of being human and our human reactions, through him we can become one with God. Verse 17, And came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were near. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. You and I can go directly to God the Father 
the supreme being of all the universe. The rest of the world cannot even do that. He doesn't hear their prayers. He will not listen to the prayers of sinners. Now, we sin, but we're not a judge sinners because of his mercy and the forgiveness and the blood of Christ. There's six and a half billion people on this earth, and there are only a few thousand. You grasp that? There are only a few thousand who can actually go to God and have their prayers heard. The rest are cut off. They're not under the blood of Christ. How awesome that is. We throw the word awesome around a lot and don't understand what it means. But this is truly awesome that we can go to the one who rules everything and actually talk to him through Christ. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners. The rest of the people in the world are. You're not that, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Told the people in Ephesus, you're just as good as the people in Jerusalem. You're just as good as the people in whatever church you want to name. Grasp that. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. What are we built on? These words by the apostles and the prophets. That's what we read. That's what we study. That's what we go by. They're our authority. There are a lot of people who give lip service to the Bible, but they don't really read it. They don't read it all. And they only believe what parts they want to pick out and believe. God makes a clear statement. Nah, don't want to do that. It must mean something else. Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. His words are what the apostles and the prophets expounded upon. He is the key. In whom all the building fitly framed together grows to a holy temple in the eternal. In whom you also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. If there's anything, one thing we know, that is, that we are to be building a spiritual temple. That Christ himself is to live in us and we are to walk as he walked, to do as he did, and bring every thought into the captivity of Christ so that we are to think as he thought. Now the world around us thinks Satan's way. Every part of society. But we are called to read these words and to think like he thinks, to come to have the same mind. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Emmanuel. You see why it's so important to read these words regularly. Because we are influenced by this world around us, and we hear its words a lot. We see its example a lot. We see the things the world around us does, and some of them can be alluring and attractive to us. But the ends thereof are the ways of death. I'll bet that in any given 24-hour period, we receive more information from the world 
see and observe more of the world than we do of God. By radio, by television, by driving to town, by whatever we do. That has an influence. And the only way we can counter it is to get our heads in here and get on our knees and have that contact with God. That's why it's so important. It isn't important that we read the Bible just so we can appear righteous. It's that Satan rules this world. And everything in it, to some degree, is tainted by his approach. However innocuous and innocent it may seem on the surface, it always has a twist somewhere. So we need to read this. And I am so thankful that we can be among others who are trying to do the same thing because we can be an incredible example to each other of people trying to do it God's way. Now, we may not by any means be perfect in it, but I think we all here are striving to do God's will and God's way. And we can encourage and strengthen one another another to do that when we ourselves can be strong and be pointing to God instead of to conditions or the world. You know, not many of God's people today have the opportunity we have. Most of them live in cities and country around here and there, and they may not even see anybody else in the church all week long. Most of us were in that position at one time or another. We'd only see God's people on Sabbath. And then only for maybe three or four hours around Sabbath service time. But we have an opportunity to rub elbows with God's people every day of our lives. And as has been said, it's uncomfortable in a goldfish bowl. Well, in a way it is, because if we're trying to do what's right, and we have people around us, and we do things that are wrong or think wrong or get in a bad attitude or whatever happens to us, then other people see it. And that makes us uncomfortable, because we would like to be private. We don't want anybody to know what's going on in our lives or our head or whatever, and we certainly don't want our imperfections and faults and bad attitudes to be seen by other people of God. So when we're in a bad attitude, it makes us uncomfortable to be around God's people. So we either have to go away from God's people or we have to get over it. And the only choice we have really is to get over it, isn't it? I'm not going to leave. You're not going to leave. So we've got to get over it, whatever it is. And it'll happen day in and day out, week by week. We'll get in wrong attitudes. We'll do wrong things. We'll set a bad example. But you know, it helps us to have other people around us who are trying to do it right because we don't want them to think ill of us. So we try to do things that are right in spite of ourselves. That's why iron sharpens iron and how we can help one another. Sometimes just being there helps somebody else. 
because they're trying their best to have a bad attitude, and you happen to be getting their way. <laughs> you know? How can I be in a bad attitude when you're smiling? Go away so I can have my pity party. No, we're here to help one another. And in that sense, it is a help. So I'm thankful that we can be among God's people because if you want to have a bad attitude, there's plenty of people out there in the world that you have one. They'll have one just like it. Or if you want to do things that are wrong, they'll be willing to do wrong with you. There are always people that are out there willing to sin. They're everywhere. Not too hard to find one. But I hope here we have those who will be strong and that will give us strength and encouragement by their example as opposed to leading us down the wrong way, which is where our human nature will take us at times. That's why God wants us to be around His people and not around the world. That's why He says don't fellowship with the world, fellowship with God's people and with God because it can help pull you up and make you better rather than pulling you down in Satan's direction. He has a reason for the rules he makes. They're for our good. Let's grasp how exciting it is, how important it is that we are here, that we have this opportunity. But we do have people, every one of us is flawed, but we're all headed, hopefully, in the right direction. We're trying to go that way in spite of ourselves. And that should be a tremendous encouragement to each other. When somebody's down, you need to be up. When you're down, they need to be up. So that we pull each other up, because we're all going to get down at times. We're all going to have our problems. But let's help each other, pray for each other, encourage each other. And let's overcome and have that fervent love that we need of God and our, of each other. That's what Ephesus lacked. And to some degree or another, we all lack that. So there's room to grow there. There's room to encourage and help one another, strengthen one another, to fulfill the purposes God has in us. So, Paul is trying to pull them up to realize, hey, you're important to God. Live up to it. Do the things he's called you to do. Recognize his hand in your life. Because apparently they were beginning to fail to see God in their lives. So he went through this whole thing here at the beginning of this book to help them see that God indeed is there. That you wouldn't have the knowledge you have if God hadn't called you out. So he numbers the hair on your head. He knows who you are. And he knows everything you go through. And he allows it to happen for your good, whatever it might be. God's with us. Who could be against us? If we understand that he is above all principalities and powers and given all power in the universe. He's on our side. What more could you ask? We have everything we need. 
even including trials, troubles, temptations, and difficulties, because sometimes those even are needed to help prune us, to help bring forth more fruit, to help us learn, to help us grow, help us change. They're not always punishments. Times, many times they're not punishments at all. They're just saying, hey, that one's doing pretty good. Let's flip a few, ouch, branches off so they'll put out even better. Works with trees and apparently works with Christians. God made trees and God made people. And he knows what we all need to make us grow and produce and to fulfill the purposes that he put in us. So Paul is saying, even in your frustrations, even in your feelings of inferiority, understand that God is always there and he has a tremendous plan and purpose for each and every one of us. And we need to glory in him and glory in what he is going to do in us.